Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Lisa. How are you doing? We are doing really well, actually. Things are, things are going okay. Awesome, awesome. I just returned from a well, I guess not weekend. We had a crazy weekend, but before the crazy weekend, I was able to grab like a whole 24 hours away at a condo near the beach with a couple friends who let me do whatever I want. So it's kind of like most fantastic girls weekend away because it's talk when you want, hide away and be quiet when you want, eat whatever you want. Super fun. That sounds wonderful. I love things like that. Obviously, well, we're in a season where Patrick is doing a lot of the parenting, uh, so me being away is a little bit less of a transition, but how does Russ do as a single parent when Hmm. you're away? Well, he does pretty well, actually. He's pretty good at getting people where they need to go, which is the one thing that I'm the keeper of the schedule, so I, I tend to be a little worried when I go away. And my, we do expect the girls living at home, our teens, to help out more when I'm gone because he still needs people to do things for him because he's busy. He's working and taking care of everybody at the same time. So they have to pitch in a little bit more than they would normally. Yeah. And so, and what is the longest you have been a single parent without him when he goes away? Well, what immediately comes to mind is when he was finishing his PhD. We were young. We were probably 30. We had four kids, including a very young baby. Our son was born in March and he finished in December. Yeah, he was just gone literally for days at a time working on his doctoral dissertation. And, you know, this was before cell phones, so I couldn't reach him. And it was rough. It was very hard for me because, I mean, he was only not that many miles away, but I had no access to him. And I've realized as I've learned more about attachment and my own attachment style that when I have absolutely no access to him, I struggle. I'm fine if I can reach him, you know, or if we, if I know I'm going to talk to him or things like that. But I, I do have a hard time if his absence is, I have no idea how long it's going to be before I hear from him again. I also pretty regularly single parent when he is out of the country. He travels some for work, but he also travels nearly every summer, every summer for a long time now to Kenya. And has sometimes gone two or this last summer he was gone three weeks. You know, now that the kids are older um, and some of the really hard behaviors are not part of our daily life anymore, it's not nearly as hard as it was when we had a lot more um, tumult going on in our family and in our home. But I still have to get into a mental space for it, you know, so that I'm ready to handle managing everything by myself. I'm in the season where everyone's starting to get older. And even though our youngest still has a lot of needs, for me, because I don't do it for long periods of time right now in this season, I kind of appreciate it because I like to be in control of my own schedule. And so it's one less person that I need to connect with and manage and not just like, not that my husband needs managing, but more just like people to manage, you know, less moving parts. But when my kids were smaller, actually when our first two kids were just a toddler and a baby, Patrick 
broke his leg, like two compound fractures, like so pretty serious. It needed surgery, actually ended up needing two surgeries. So even though he wasn't out of the country or traveling for work, I was kind of on my own. And that was a ridiculously hard season. And I think because of the trauma of not expecting it and then really not even knowing how long it was going to be and then also having to care for him. So the season of having to take care of a toddler, a baby, and a husband was ridiculously hard. So I have so much admiration for people who do this day in and day out because I'm kind of the opposite of a single parent. We bought a house with my parents over 10 years ago and they still work and they have their own completely separate space, separate entrance, all of those things. But they are just another pair of hands around when we need them. And they're super great about helping out. And it's a mutually beneficial thing. We help them out with a lot of things too. But I'm a total, it takes a village person. And so I just can't imagine doing it as a single parent because I haven't even been doing it as a regular double parent for over 10 years now. Actually, even more than that, because we, lived with my parents. And that's how this whole thing started because we did it as a trial. We needed a place to stay for a while and it worked out really well. And so we made it permanent 10 years ago. So I've actually been not even double parenting, but like quadruple parenting for well over a decade, 13, almost 13 years now. That sounds really wonderful. Well, I have great admiration for moms whose husbands are deployed in the military or who have husbands who travel extensively for work. And I especially have admiration for single moms who do this every day, for the most part on their own. Our guest today is a single mom who began her journey into motherhood as a foster mom. And she later, over time, she ended up adopting two of her foster children. So she is a single mom of two daughters. And she's also a um, nurse practitioner and is beginning a subspecialty in foster and adoptive families. She lives in Washington State, and she is a friend of mine. And um, I just really loved talking with her. Well, great. I am super excited to hear from Molly. Let's get to her interview. Molly, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. I'm really, really happy you're here today. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you. Great. Well, you know, we invited you on particularly because you are a single foster and adoptive mom. That's a population of people that we don't often hear from in the adoption world. And I think a lot of people would like to hear what you have to say about that experience. I think there's more of us out there than most people realize. You know, I think you're right. I meet more and more um, single moms who are fostering and adopting. And and uh, I know you'll talk about this a little later, but finding community has been really important and is important for a lot of moms. Yes. So why don't you tell me the story of how you decided to foster and adopt as a single mom? Okay. So I was um, first foster licensed nine years ago. And started that process, I knew I really wanted to be a mom. And honestly, just sort of as I was getting older, was like, well, through adoption, I kind of am in charge of whether I get to be a mom or not. I'm not in charge of whether, you know, I'm going to 
meet the right person and fall in love and get married. So I just heard um, God speak to me loud and clear. This is, this is how you're going to be a mom. You know, it kind of was one of those moments where it made my heart pound and kind of sweat and sort of that internal response that is what I usually get when God is sort of telling me a big thing that kind of makes me go, oh, yay. And oh, my gosh, all at once. So I got licensed. It took um, almost nine months for all my licensing stuff to go through. And a week after I was licensed, my first little one moved in. Wow, that was quick. That was a quick uh, process. And how old was your first foster child when she came to you? So she was um, six, almost seven months old. She stayed with me until she was 23 months old and then returned home to her mom. Okay. And then, um, so that was, when was that that you had your first placement? So she was six months old when I got her and she will be nine this January. Okay. So you've been actually in the fostering world for quite a while. Yeah. Much much longer than me, anyhow. (laughs) Okay. So she went home and then what? She went home and her birth mom did want me to have a continuing relationship with her because she herself was a teenager in foster care when she had her baby and she had a big chunk of her life that basically just wasn't recorded, doesn't exist. There's not pictures, there's not school projects that were saved, all of those things. So what she communicated to me was that it really was important to her that Selena know where she was, that she was loved and taken care of and did all the things, had birthday parties and Halloween and and all of that. So we were committed to that. Um, It was awkward and, you know, kind of scary because in my heart, from what I was told at the beginning of the case and how it looked most of the time during the case, um, I was going to be adopting Selena. So I was in a a deep grief. Um, I hope it's the worst grief that I ever go through. But at the same time, my heart was committed to doing what I needed to do to still make the best choices for that little girl. So it was sort of an ongoing grief and pain to try to stay involved because I saw her a couple times um, in the first couple months and then I um, got cut off and didn't hear anything for a year um, and then saw her once and got cut off again for almost another year. And then her birth mom reached out to me. And, and so at that point, I had healed enough from the grief that I was able to set boundaries for myself and for the little girl, you know, just basically said, she's about to turn four now. And she's not going to remember me for what role I'm in. But if you're going to allow us to build a relationship, it's not going to be fair or acceptable anymore to just yank that away because I can sign up to risk myself, but we cannot sign up to hurt her. And she's old enough that she would recognize if we built a relationship and then it was stopped again. So I set some firm boundaries and we have spent now the last almost five years um, working together to really build that relationship. And I feel like 
it's not a warm, fuzzy relationship, right? Like it's not like other family members and friends, but we have a completely trusting relationship going both directions. And she has never asked for anything or tried to take an advantage and trusts that I would work with her and mentor her rather than call in a CPS referral, you know, unless it was absolutely, absolutely necessary. And she's gone on to have two more kids and she's doing a great job raising her three kids. And it's quite clear that she knows who she relies on for parenting advice and, you know, somebody's sick, somebody hit their head, all of those things. The emergency contact for the doctor is me. The emergency contact for the school is me. And she maintains her relationships with her birth family, but has been very clear who she wants to emulate, what she wants to emulate in her life. I'm glad to do. Glad to be around for that little girl to do whatever it takes to help her succeed and stop the generational cycle of, you know, poverty and foster care. And I had to sacrifice all that to end that for her, even though she's not in my home, she's not living the life exactly that I would have chosen for her, it's, it's worth it. When I was working mentoring foster parents, you know, one of the things we tell them is that you're not really just fostering the child, you're fostering the family. You are the bridge between the child and the family for a period of time. And, you know, I know for some people it's scary to engage with the family. We feel safe with caring for the child. But, you know, in my experience, it's really important. I mean, my foster daughter, you know, is a teen. And just a couple nights ago, her adult brother came over and actually cooked dinner for us, which was unexpected and ate dinner with us and spent the evening. And I just think it's, it's a beautiful thing when you can engage with the family for the sake of the child. Yeah. And it, it was a big shift for me because, I mean, Honestly, and I was honest about it from the start, I was not entering foster care to foster. I was entering foster care as a means of adopting and building my family through adoption. So as a single mom working all the time, I was not able to participate in, you know, driving for visits, supervising visits, any of that. So we really didn't have much interaction with her mom. So then all of a sudden, I hit the point where we were kind of at big crisis, conflict, grief, and I needed to build a relationship all at the same time. And I had a choice to be hurt and just walk away from everyone or do the best that I could to deal with my own emotions while not walking away. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So what was your next placement? So then I took um, over a year off um, the agency that I was licensed with, the placement person, the Karen Grove, who I think a whole bunch of us know and love. She's the one that calls and gives children to people. I just said, I can't do it. I'm not in an, in an emotional or, or physical or mental health state right now to be a good mom for anybody. And I need to take some time to grieve and get some more clarity, you know, see, reconnect and see what God had for me next. And I, I didn't, I honestly didn't have it in me to love again and have my heart broken like that. And I feel like the kids really deserve to be loved like they are going to stay forever. And I didn't have the capacity to do that then. So I had a few months off for grieving and then I actually put myself in counseling 
to really make sure I was healthy and coming at everything from the right motivation and with the right support and community. And so it was actually, so, so my, the little girl went home in December and went all the way around the calendar, went to refresh whatever year that was again in February. So, so you're talking about the refresh conference in Seattle for adoptive and foster parents. Okay. Which I have been attending since the first one. Me too. Been connected in. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I went to that one because if I didn't go to that one and collect the training credits, I wasn't going to be able to get, get enough credits to keep my license open. So mm-hmm. I walked straight into that one and said, let me just be clear. I'm only here to collect the credits. <laughs> I'm still mad. I'm still hurt. I'm still grieving. Leave me alone. I just need the credits. And so, of course, I think it was less than two weeks later, Karen called. I was in the middle of a conference and took a call. And she said, you know, I know you haven't given me permission to call yet, but the only person I can think of when I'm thinking about where this little girl should go is you. So I'm just wondering if you would at least prayerfully consider it. So the next thing I knew, I was finishing my continuing education conference by the SeaTac airport and driving to stop at the DSHS office on the way home and pick up a two and a half year old. Oh, wow. You picked her up that day driving home. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay. Driving home and picked her up with her, her proverbial bag of nothing very helpful. And so we um, stopped at Target. And I just had to stand her up and start measuring clothes, didn't know what size clothes or anything else she wore and had to stop and think, okay, what do I still have? We kind of had to start all over again because I had sent all of uh, my first little girl's stuff with her. So it was like, okay, came home with a two and a half year old that I wasn't expecting to come home with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So she was with me for um, only three months. And it actually was a situation I never imagined that I actually asked my agency to place her elsewhere because she had so many significant needs from her years of abuse and neglect that I couldn't, as a single parent working, I didn't actually literally have enough time off to take her to the number of therapies and appointments that she was going to, to need. And I knew, although I have one business day off a week, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner and work as a medical provider. I knew that even adults, we really don't ask to do more than maybe two kinds of therapy in a day. Otherwise it's overwhelming and it doesn't, it only overwhelms. It doesn't have any positive. So, you know, and then the social worker suggested, well, couldn't you have them all on Tuesdays? And I said, no, I'm not going to ask a two and a half year old to go to occupational therapy, physical therapy, play counseling, and a birth mom visit in the same day. I don't think that's fair or right for her. And I need you to, I really think she needs to be in a home that has one of the parents that's at least home part time, you know, several days a week to take her to all the therapies and participate in them with her so that they can then be modeled at home, you know, it can be consistent for her. So, Mm -hmm. um, so she was moved on, which was a huge relief and devastating all in one, because I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't be her best mom, but I wanted to be a mom. And I never imagined being in a situation where I had a child in my home that I asked to be moved. 
But you knew deep in your gut, it was not going to work with the life you had. It was not going to work with the life that I had. I was not going to be able to be the best mom for her, Mm -hmm. meet her needs. She was not going to be a kid that I had the emotional capacity to parent unless she got all of those therapies. So it just wasn't a match that was best for either one of us. How much time did you then take off until your next placement again? Almost none. So that was, you know, that, that kind of opened the gate. All right, I can do this again. I can live through this again and ready to trust, ready to risk. And actually the foster family that had my first little girl before she moved to my house had another little girl in their home and we had become friends. We had all sort of been really emotionally impacted by that return home that none of us had expected. And they had another little girl in their home that they'd had for um, a little over a year at that point. And they have been foster parents so long with the state that they have a great relationship and in many situations have told the state who in their opinion they think would be the best forever family for a kid and lots of their neighbors, church members, all of that um, have become the adoptive parents of kids that they have fostered kind of formed a relationship with this little girl. My second little one left the end of May and we started transitioning Lauren, who's now my daughter, in July and she moved in with me in mid-August. Should have been adopted pretty soon after that, but the system never works quite right for that. So she was adopted the following May, just after she turned two and she is six and a half now. Were there moments in that uh, foster to adopt experience where you wondered if it was going to fall apart? Were you ever afraid? Yes. I mean, I was, I was afraid and tentative enough that I had set a certain boundary for, no, you will not move her into my home permanently until, until we'd reached the termination trial, or at least the, the first step of the termination trial. And so we planned it all that way. Birth parents were not in the picture. They were not participating at all. It got to where it should have been the first hearing that then sets the termination trial date, which is what we were all waiting for to move her into my home. Because, I mean, I won't say that I didn't have personal investment and I don't want my heart broken again. That's like she's been in a great home her whole life. She came into foster care at birth. We are not going to move her till you guarantee us that this is her forever home. She doesn't deserve to have that trauma. So we hit that date because the parents were missing. They had to advertise the serving, you know, that there was going to be a trial um, in the paper for 30 days legally before we could set a trial date. And when they went to collect all the documents for, to set the trial date, they realized there was an entire batch of cases that the attorney general's office had not posted in the paper. They had lost them and not posted them. So termination trial should have been in October, and it didn't happen until the end of February. But she was with you all that time? Yep, she was with me. So I, you know, I still had to take, I took, you know, she was with me. We moved her with total just faith and a lot of grumbling under my breath about what was going to happen if it all fell apart. Yeah. Um, But um, moved her and just trusted and And started raising her with my whole heart, like she was going to be my daughter forever. And she is. That's a good story. That's a good story. So tell us about your next daughter. 
Lauren was adopted when she was two and literally two weeks after she was adopted, um, she had a full sibling sister that was born. We knew that birth mom was pregnant because she actually wound up coming out of the woodwork and showing up at the termination trial to relinquish. And everybody who's familiar with the system knows that if birth parents relinquish, Number one, they get to have some sort of open and open communication agreement with the child. And number two, you wouldn't necessarily have a future baby immediately removed at birth. She arrived at the termination trial very obviously pregnant and managed to keep her baby for two years and appears as best as we can see to have done a fairly good job, birth dad came back on the scene. He comes in and out of prison. The little girl came into care um, the day after her second birthday, went to a receiving care home, was going to need to be moved, and I got contacted by the state. I had, meanwhile, um, closed my foster care license. We were moving forward as, you know, single mom and one daughter, and then they called me, and I found out that you are considered, or I was considered a relative, Um, I was going to be considered uh, kinship. So I had to really think and pray about that. And I decided it didn't change the reasons why I had closed my foster license. And in fact, it made it even more tenuous because if we brought her, if I brought her into my home and birth mom or dad did get it back together to have her back, not only would we have the grief and loss going on, someday I would have to explain to Lauren that that really was her birth sibling that was with us and tackle all of those questions potentially, you know, mm-hmm. why did they get it back together for to get her back, but they didn't get it together to get me back mom and all of that. So I, I told them, I said, I can't foster her, but if you in any way could place her with a family that's willing for us to bridge a relationship and who lives nearby for us to do that, I would love to do that. If all the girls have is however many months, of playing and photos and things like that. And someday we can tell them we did the best we could. That would be better than having nothing. And in my eyes would be better than them having more grief and loss if they were to get separated again, knowing that they were sisters. Cause at that point they were only two and four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With a family who was interested in doing that. Yes. So I actually called another, um, single foster mom friend of mine who lived only about 15 minutes away. And I knew she had an open bed. And I just said, look, here's what it is. And, you know, I don't know if you would be willing to do that. And I would never, if she stays for a long time and becomes legally free, and what is best for everyone is for you to be her mama forever. And, you know, I can be auntie. And then as the girls grow, we can you know, tell them, of course, that they're sisters and let them be sisters forever. Mm -hmm. Um, That's great. I'm not going to rip a kid out of a home just to have sisters together if we can have relationship. And if she becomes legally free and it's not what's best for forever for your family, then I will adopt her. Like there's no risk that she will go elsewhere and all of that time spent bonding will be for nothing. So Mm -hmm. sure enough, she stayed and Um, A year, almost exactly to the date later, became legally free and moved to our house, which which was um, a year ago this last September. She moved to our house. 
on September 17th and I adopted her on December 15th. And um, so we've been a family now for a whole year. That's great. What a great thing for your girls to have each other. And I don't know, it just seems like you've been very thoughtful and kind of calm or rational or something through the process. You know, I think a lot of us um, get pretty swept up emotionally. And I appreciate the fact that you've thought about things the way you have. It's really, it's impressive. Well, thank you. It, it was, I think, whereas if I'm honest, I entered the foster care world elfishly because that's how I wanted to become a mom. It really wasn't about, it wasn't, it wasn't first about being a great home for a child. It was sort of a first, this is how I'm going to be a mom. And yeah, I'll be a great home for a child, but this is how I'm going to be a mom. And then when I navigated through that first case and had to shift to no matter what it does to my heart and my mind and my soul, I need to do what's best for the child. Cause I'd never been a parent before. It wasn't like I had biological children or other children that I'd raised and then was going to tackle this foster to adopt thing. I'd never parented before. So that whole thing of kind of laying down at all of your own priorities and all of your own needs and wants and having a little tiny person who needs to come first was new for me for sure. I'm a, I'm a strong believer that you can have postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety when you didn't give birth to the child. Cause I sure did. <laughs> well, talk about um, that a little bit. Talk, I think uh, a lot of people are surprised that there is actually post-adoption depression. Why talk about that just a little bit. And all, will you add to that some of your thoughts as a medical provider, in addition to being a foster and adoptive mom? Sure. I can remember vividly just, I don't know, within a month or six weeks of my first little one being in my home. Usually when you become a parent, it's a brand new little newborn who's only doing the newborn things and sleeping, eating, pooping. I entered, you know, straight in with within 10 days, she learned to crawl. In another couple of weeks, popped out her first tooth and we were doing teething and crawling. And I distinctly remember sitting on the couch and just losing my marbles because she'd come home for a visit and, and the aura gel, the teething gel had not come home in the bag. And it was the only tube I had. And here we were with a miserable, here I was with a miserable teething infant, didn't have the aura gel. And I was just undone. I was mad at the birth mom for not sending it back undone because it wasn't going to be easy to take a screaming, crying infant in the car to the grocery store to go get more. And a really great friend of mine who only lived about five minutes away happened to call at that time. And, you know, thanks to caller ID, I could see who it was and that it wouldn't be bad if I picked up the phone while I was hysterical. <laughs> and um, she's like, oh my gosh, I'm on the way over. And she came over and just sat down and she goes, you know, I think you have postpartum depression because yeah, it, it can have to do with hormone shifts and whatever's had, you know, gone on with your body if you actually did birth a child. But she goes, it's mostly has to do with all of a sudden one day your entire life changes and things that were easy, like going to the grocery store by yourself are no longer easy and you're sleep deprived and you're kind of maybe food deprived because you didn't get to eat your meal at, you know, when you thought you would and when your body needed to. and you're just undone. So she gave me the gift of 
feeding the baby and taking care of the baby. And she said, you just blow your nose and go to the grocery store. I want you to walk up and down every single aisle twice or three times if you need to, just to collect yourself and remember to get all of the things that you need so that you don't have to go back again for a while. And that it truly was like when your whole life, every single aspect of your life, all of a sudden changes. That is what hit me hard. It is no longer about me. I am no longer even in charge of how much sleep I get or whether I get to eat when I'm hungry or, you know, all of those things. And at that point, I was still a pretty new nurse practitioner. That part I navigated through, but when that little baby returned home, um, I hit a depression and anxiety. Anxiety first, it's, you know, I think it's a thing in the foster care world we call anticipatory grief. Mm -hmm. So when you're told that that child's going to return home and then you still have to keep it together to be their parent, but you know, they're going to leave generally for another month or two, at least because you're giving them a fair transition. You still have to be their best mom and you're grieving all at the same time. So once I hit that, I did everything I knew as a medical provider, I would advise my patients to do. Um, you know, get enough sleep, eat healthy food, drink enough water, make sure you're getting support. And I remember I stuck it out a long time um, and finally went to my own nurse practitioner and just was a big blubbering, crying, shaking, trembling mess and said, I've done everything I know how that I'm supposed to do to get my mental health back together and I can't get it back together. So I think I need some medicine. Um, and was that was, at all hard for you to come to that recognition or was it really just so clear? I think both. It was very clear because it, it's what I would want my patients to do. You know, here I've, I've try all of these things. And if you're still not okay after that, you know, not that I, hold medication hostage until you've done all of the self-care things, because that's not right either. Um, but, you know, I, I had wanted to hold off on medicine for as long as I could, if I could. So I tried all of the things, didn't work, got there, knew I wanted the medicine. But at the same time, even as a medical provider, I was trapped under that social stigma of mental health care and medication. And goodness, I prescribed this medication. Why couldn't I get my act together enough to not need the medication that I give to other people. And so literally I was shaking uh, and I love and respect my nurse practitioner. She's my friend. And so there was no stigma with her, but still this social stigma was just on my shoulders. And it was kind of like admitting something was wrong with me when in my medical side of my head, I can say, look, neurotransmitters, are just as out of control as if I have allergies or asthma or diabetes or anything else that I can't control that I would need outside tools. I would need to change my diet and my lifestyle and my exposures and all of that for those other medical problems, but I would also need a prescribed tool in my tool belt. So why is it such a big deal to need a prescribed tool for my mental health? So once I hopped over that hurdle and got on my own medicine and got myself back in a great place, it has given me so much empathy for my patients who struggle and it's allowed me to be a better provider for them 
what I feel like medical providers should be, how we should be working with our patients to cast that social stigma aside. Throw it away. It doesn't make any sense. It's something that we all are putting on each other. And why wouldn't we collect every tool we needed to be our best healthy self so that we can be our best healthy parent for our kids? It's a really good point. That's really good. I'm so glad you shared that because I do think there's a stigma. And I think also, especially for those of us who are adopting, you know, all of that goes into our records of sorts. And, you know, right. we, worry, we worry it'll be held against us. But honestly, knowing when you need to take good care, better care of yourself or you need prescription medication is actually a sign, I think, of some good mental health, some good decision making. But yeah. we, I think we worry about that because sometimes I, that we feel kind of exposed. Mm-hmm. I know as a foster mom, I think I felt it a little more as a foster mom than as an adoptive mom because as a foster mom, you know, I'm dealing with caseworkers and people right here in my town, in my community, right. where in the adoption world, I mean, our agency was in, a, it was in the South. It wasn't even anywhere near here. So right. interesting. But I'm, I'm so glad you shared that. I think that's really, really important. As a provider um, and participating at the Refresh Conference and stuff, I've wound up with a lot of foster and adoptive families who are now my patients because they're wanting to have care that is the most patient-centered for them. And I've had those exact conversations. No, Molly, I don't want to start on medicine because I still need to pass this home study. And I'm afraid that they will not approve us if this is on here. Mm -hmm. And so... And that is a real fear. I mean, that's not one that I can discount because unfortunately our system is broken enough that you can't guarantee that one time when you have somebody doing a home study and has more of opinion that you and I would share like, Oh no, that's actually good because the parents wanting to be healthy. The next one who comes along is might not be consistent with that. And they hold all the power when they're doing your, your home study. And so I just have tried to reassure that, you know, I think it looks best actually to try to be helpful. And honestly, when it comes down to it, the bottom of that medical form has a sentence that's something like, you know, and in my professional opinion, this person is physically and mentally healthy. You know, I don't have any qualms of them being a foster adoptive parent. Mm-hmm. And I said, if I sign that, I said, I've been a foster and adoptive mom. I am not going to sign that and put a child in harm's way if I feel like there's a reason. I think we just need to hope for the system that if we put all the truth on there and I sign it, that is what should be important. Not, not what the details on the paper are, but that some, your medical provider feels you are fine, you know, healthy and suitable for a placement. Yeah. As a single parent, especially parenting children with early adverse experiences, early trauma, what would you want your family, your friends, your church to know about that? You know, how, what could they know and understand better for you, for other moms? That's such a double-edged sword, right? Because would any of us do it again if we knew what was about to have happened? <laughs> um, but I do wish that at the beginning of either fostering, you know, getting a foster license or going through the home study process for an adoption, 
I wish the training included at least a sampling of what I feel like we've all had to seek out afterward, after the child's in our home and we're having this struggle of, oh my goodness, where are all these behaviors coming from? You know, which kind of therapy? Wait, what? Sensory processing? What sensory processing? And what occupational therapists? And where do I need to go if we at least had a little bit of a primer on, okay, here's what to kind of keep an eye out for. And here are your resources if you think you're seeing any of these things. And I just feel like as the foster or adoptive parent, we could have all been much better equipped. And by being better equipped to start, we would have been able to at least offer the opportunity to our friends and family and church members, our support community to also be equipped. But when you're being bombarded and you don't even know what's going on, you don't know how to explain to your support people around you what you need because you don't even know what you need. So, I mean, I think now that I'm seeing some um, trauma like the you and I were were together at a trauma informed caregiver training. Now that I'm seeing things like that, I think little mini versions of that would be great to be provided at churches and for school districts and even for family members. You know, if you're getting ready to get foster licensed and hopefully your your family and friends or whoever your support community is, you could pick a few key people and say, look, before this starts would you come to this training with me so that we can kind of all be on the same page and do the best we can for the kiddos. Everything I've learned that I needed to know has come because I've sought it out by attending things like the refresh conference or by um, finding other trainings in the community, trainings that are offered by the state sometimes, but, but we're really not a part of the foster parent licensing training. Um, That's what I wish is that there would be, here, now that you're going to do this, here's the primer of things we should at least think we, you would want in your tool belt before you get started so that you at least know where to seek help when you realize you need help. Have you gotten better at asking for help over the years of fostering and being an adoptive single mom? Um, not until lately. <laughs> okay. I think one common character trait that seems to run common with all of the single foster adoptive moms and and dads that's a whole nother subject there's only been two single foster adoptive dads that we've ever known in our group of of people um but that were very independent high achiever goal oriented achievement oriented Most that I know are professionals. You know, we own our own homes. We're doing all of the things. We're not used to having help with anything before we have kids. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really occur to us to ask for help when we then have kids. And a common sort of guilt of, hey, I decided to do this on my own. Um, This wasn't a family decision, right? It was my individual decision. So almost a pressure, an unnecessary pressure we put on ourselves of, I chose to do this, so I should be able to keep it together and, and do everything. It's not really my, um, my right to ask for help. So I think we guilt ourselves into not asking for help, and inherently our character seems to be really independent 
to start with. So I actually had to hit a major crisis in the last six months where I had no choice but to have help before I got very good at asking for help. I even actually didn't have to get good at asking for it. <laughs> I didn't have any other choice. <laughs> so you were, you were just so desperate. You had to ask for help or get it. Yeah. 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 Well, I could talk to you forever, obviously, but um, I want to ask you a final question, but what encouragement, what word would you give to other single moms walking this road or women who are considering becoming foster or adoptive moms as single parents? I think that, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is if that's what God has laid on your heart, don't let all of the things that can feel really daunting stop you because, you know, God will help you in the ways that you don't even know you need. Don't be overwhelmed. It's super easy to be, look at the process and be overwhelmed and go, I really want to be a mom, but not that bad. You know, when you look at what you might have to accomplish and do. And I think what I would say is make sure that you have your community, um, whoever that is, whether that's your church community that is loving you and supporting you, your family, your friends, you know, your neighbors, whatever. Make sure you have that community. Make sure you're not in isolation before you even start and try to be really intentional about inviting key members of that community to do this with you because you cannot do it by yourself and you need those people who have kind of committed. We don't know what this is going to look like or what it's going to entail, but we're going to stand right next to you and, you know, do the victory dances with you or hand you the tissues that you need or come and wash your laundry or mow your lawn. I mean, all those things that we're already doing by ourselves as single parents and then you add childcare into there. Um, you just have to give way and let other people do things for you, which is kind of a humbling thing, or at least it was for me to go, oh, I can't do it all anymore. I need help. And that's okay. It's okay to need help. Um, but make sure you have them on board before you start because you're going to get overwhelmed. I think no matter which way you become a parent, you're going to get overwhelmed. And so you, you need to know that help is there before the overwhelmed hits you and, and have those people committed to helping you and maybe even saying, hey, I think you might be overwhelmed. It seems like you might need some help. What can I do? Or even better yet, have laid out a list of, if I look like I'm overwhelmed or this or that, here are all the things I'm willing to relinquish. Could you get my grocery list and, you know, take my debit card and go get the groceries and bring them to the house so that I don't have to do that? Or could you, when you bring the casserole, could you stay and just talk with me and make it so that I'm not alone? You know, I love the food, but we're by ourselves. Single parents are by ourselves. We have nobody to tag out with when it gets rough in the house with kids Nobody there, you know, that we lay down next to at the end of the night to kind of go, whoo, that was a day. Or, you know, nobody there when we come in the door after work to say, oh, how was your day? You know, we're sort of in charge of all of that for other people, but nobody is in that role for us. So I think it's important to very intentionally ask people to fill that 
partnership role that we don't have living in our home you know find people who are not living in our home who are willing to fill that partnership role for us that's really really good advice well molly thank you so much for being on the podcast i wish we had another half hour or so to keep talking i had more questions i could ask you but um i'm really thankful for your input and and your encouragement to other moms too so thanks so much well thank you for asking yeah it's been my pleasure Thank you, Molly. That was a great interview. I love how Molly talks about her own limitations as a human and was able to make, is able to make decisions about placements and just honor that she can only do so much. And I think sometimes we just feel like we have to do it all. And maybe because she's doing such an awesome job as a single mom, she's able to recognize what her limitations are. And that's been one of the huge things that I've been learning is to think of ourselves first, not in a selfish way, but just in a way that recognizes that we can only give to the other people in our house and in our spheres of influence when we're taking care of ourselves really well. And I think Molly's doing a great job of that. And so I really appreciate that about her. Yeah, she really uh, took into consideration what she was able to do as a single working mom and what her children could handle. And I think it was, she just showed a lot of wisdom in my mind. You know, I also love that she talked really openly about post-adoption depression, about grief and loss, her own experience of grief and loss and depression. You know, there is a lot of stigma about that. And I like that she not only talks about it, but she's also very um, educated about it as a medical professional too. And that she, you know, talked about treatment and just a little bit, you know, but I appreciated that she just brought that out into the light because so many people do struggle when a child leaves that maybe you had fostered for a long time or um, that you thought you were going to be able to adopt and you're not able to adopt them. Or even if you adopt a child and it's just hard and you start to sink, you know, into depression. So I'm, I'm just glad she brought it out into the light. I can appreciate that because you and I have talked about this before. We know so many people and I think each of us have experienced situations after a placement that we weren't expecting. And it does, it can throw you for a loop. And when we don't have those met expectations, I think that post-adoption depression is such a serious thing. And like you said, something we're not talking enough about. So whether you are a single parent or a married parent or however you're walking through this journey of motherhood and whether you're just really stressed out or you are struggling with some depression, we have a great resource for you this week. It's called Decreasing the Impact of Stress. And it would apply to people who are struggling with depression too. And it's a four-day video course. And so you can sign up to get that delivered to your inbox at the show notes. There's an opt-in there. And you can also connect with Molly on Facebook. She's Molly with a Y, Ford, F-O-R-D, on Facebook. And so you can look her up there. Um, we'll have a link to her profile on the show notes as well to make it easier for you. So you can find, again, the link to decreasing the impact of stress and the link to contact Molly at the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 14.
We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener question. This week's question is, my child seems nervous and worried a lot. How can I increase his felt safety? So Lisa, can you even just explain to us what felt safety even is? Sure. You know, we're the adults, and so we know logically when our children are safe and when they're not. But it doesn't really matter intellectually if they're safe because fear is a primal emotion. It's controlled by the more primitive brain structures. So we can't lecture it, scold it, or punish it out of kids. We can't just give them more knowledge. If we do that, we actually sometimes create even more fear. Fear actually has to be calmed through connection and nurture. So there are so many ways that we can connect and nurture our kids in order to calm their fears and increase their sense of felt safety. That's so good. I'm such a fixer. And so I I feel like I want to just logic that out of a kid. So it reminds me of Robin's episode. I think it was episode six where she just talks about even just being with our kids in their emotion and validating it. So what are some ways that you have found that work for your family that increase that felt safety through connection and nurture? Well, when I think in terms of my kids, probably some of their greatest struggles in terms of felt safety have been related either to food. Is there enough food? Will there be enough food for me? Am I going to get so hungry? I'm going to die. And nighttime. Those are probably the two times when we've had to work the hardest. And, you know, food, I think we've probably talked about it before, but the most important thing with food is showing them through hundreds and thousands of times that we, they will never need to be hungry, that we are going to meet their needs for food. And that means perhaps that they always need to carry a snack in their pocket. You know, with Calcadon, she in particular craved meat a lot. And so I would make little bags of beef jerky and tuck them in her coat. So during recess or right after school, before she even got home, she could um, eat something and that would bring down some of her anxiety and fear. You know, we talk about having a basket of fruit or a fruit bowl on the counter or certain snacks that are always available like cheese sticks or, or whatever it is so that our children's need for food and the assurance it's always going to be there is really easily dealt with and taken care of. Um, in terms of nighttime, That, I think we can also get very practical. It's not enough to say to a child, you're safe, look, you know, mom and dad are here. That's not really enough for them. For most children, I think they need some concrete things to help them feel safer. For example, how easy is it just to give a child a flashlight, you know? And I remember with our uh, youngest getting a flashlight that you actually had to hold the button down in order for it to work because otherwise he would leave the flashlight on all night and we were constantly replacing batteries. But a simple flashlight goes a long way for a child feeling safer. One of our children also had a lot of fears at night. And so we had a little tent, a little children's tent that we put on top of his bed. And he would crawl inside there in this little kind of cocoon environment. And he could actually zip it shut or most of the way shut. And that increased his sense of safety at nighttime so that he could rest and actually sleep better. So those are just a couple small things in terms of felt safety. How about you, Melissa? Yeah, I can totally relate to that sleep piece. We definitely have a child who is high anxiety, but it is definitely amplified at nighttime. 
And this particular child was really afraid that something would come in the night and get her. So she actually even expressed to us that she felt safer either behind a curtain or like you were talking about the tent or in a top bunk. And so sometimes if we ask our kids what they think will help, they'll tell us. And, you know, to us, again, it feels a little silly, but this is so not about our thinking brain, right? It's all about that felt safety. So I would say the other things that have been helpful for us are just mantras, simple things that we have them repeat about themselves. I am safe here. I am loved here. This is my forever family. And then we also, anything tangible that empowers our kids, we're a huge fan of essential oils at our house. And so wild orange can help increase feelings of courage and braveness. And we actually have a oil blend now called Brave. It's specifically for kids. It's already diluted. And so, you know, just giving that to our kids and telling them, you know, maybe even explaining some of the science of why it works and how it can really help them really empowers them. And so I've seen this work even um, in another little girl that I interact with. So they just need tangible things from us. If separation, anxiety is an issue, Uh, giving them a tangible thing that tells them we're not going to leave. Give them something of yours that they know is important to you because they know you won't leave that thing, even if they don't believe that they're important enough. Yeah. When I had to travel at one point, I gave one of my daughters a necklace of mine that was just a it was a Africa necklace and she wore that while I was gone. Um, when one of our sons was very young, his therapist had us take actually a photo of Russ and me and him and I printed it out and then I put it on something so that he could wear it and so that he would see it and remember I belong. I'm, I'm safe. I'm part of this family. I have a mom and dad who are watching out for me. So I think there are a lot of really simple things we can do to increase their sense of safety. And like you, we also use essential oils. And my young teen daughter found that they um, helped her reduce anxiety. And she was old enough that she could manage that herself. And she had a diffuser in her room and, and would diffuse them in the evening and at bedtime. And those things helped her feel safe as well. Perfect. Well, if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, feel free to send us an email. Our email is email at theadoptionconnection.com, or you can call and record your question at our listener hotline. The number there is 208-741-3880. Don't worry, that line is not monitored, so it won't ring anywhere. You can even call us in the middle of the night and leave your question. If you need some more personalized help, you're feeling like you're at the end of your rope or you just can't figure out how to make the things that you hear either here on the podcast or in books apply to your family, we would love to help you out. We do offer private coaching and you can start off with a complimentary session. So for more information on that and to schedule an appointment, you can go to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you.
The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.